Good morning. Uh, what can I say? <clears throat> Heaven as better than sex. Heaven is better than the best sex you will ever have. Okay. I, I used a rather cheap advertising gimmick to get more than three people here to Summer Chapel. <laughs> I see it worked. <laughs> Heaven is better than sex. I don't really want to talk about sex. I want to talk about heaven. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, heaven became a dominant theme in our home. Uh, for in this portrait of our family, uh, the center person there is my son, John. And uh, we are on a wheelchair ramp in the back of our home. Uh, and uh, John was fine for 13 years. And then for a number of years after that, he went from strong, healthy, to a walker, to a wheelchair, uh, to a quadriplegic and messed up dad. So we had lots of occasion to talk about heaven in our home. And it was a natural subject. We probably talked about it more than most families do. Uh, and uh, one of the things that, that I discovered was uh, that I, I needed, if I was to make it through the brokenness of this world, uh, you know, I needed, I needed this portrait of a better world. And I needed a strong portrait of that. And so did my kids. Because something has happened in evangelical theology whereby, uh, you know, the eschaton used to be taught a lot. Now, it mostly got taught in terms of roadmaps and timelines and that kind of thing, which probably is not really what the literature is trying to do. But then it just dropped off the seat. <laughs> And so I, I'd like to talk about heaven, but I'd like to talk about it in terms that, uh, that I think ought to excite us about heaven. And I, I remember telling my kids when they were teenagers, they, they, they thought heaven was quite blasé, and I said, no, heaven is better than sex. They looked, they stopped dead in their tracks. Okay, is dad just messing with us? <laughs> well, that's true. I like to mess with them. But that's also my thesis. Uh, for, for they've been raised in this kind of a world, you know, a world that, that looks at, at heaven 
as a place of clouds and harps. And the greatest joy in heaven is to eat Philadelphia cream cheese. And it just sounds boring, you know? So I said to them, no, heaven is better than the best sex I hope you'll have. And so I want to take you to four quick pictures of heaven. I would blush if all of them were sex, so here, but here are four. Uh, We can drop the clouds because we know from a biblical vision it's going to be a new heavens, new earth. Uh, But uh, at any rate, uh, four windows into heaven. The first window is this. It's a window of heaven that talks about heaven as milk and honey, milk and honey. You'll remember that they're going towards, uh, you know, the promised land. And it is described in the book of Exodus as you're headed for a place of milk and honey. And then they get out into the desert and it's anything but that. You know, it's not a place of milk and honey, it's, it's desert. And they're crying out to God and like good Christians, they're complaining about their circumstances and, and, and God gives them manna. And in that text, it reads like this as it describes the manna. The manna looked white like coriander seed. I guess they had a different color to their coriander seed. White like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Apparently, that was the first occasion of frosted flakes in history. Flakes of honey. Uh, And and so the the portrait is this God giving them manna, and the manna is for them to think about where they're headed. For you recall that the manna stops the moment they eat the produce of the land. The manna is to say you're headed towards something better. It is the the theological taste in food that is the opposite to the bitter herbs that they ate during the time of the Passover, which was to remind them of the bitter times, the dear times, the slavery, the hardships of Egypt. And if our lives are going to keep some kind of orientation, we need to know we're headed towards something better. And John, the apocalyptic writer in the book of Revelation, says it to his audience, that hang in there and you will in the eschaton eat of the tasty honey, the hidden manna. Well, picture number two takes the whole taste of milk and honey into yet another direction. For picture number two of heaven that I would offer you is that it is better than sex. The writer of the song, Songs, says this, how much more pleasing is your love than wine? And I have tasted some of the very best Cabernet Sauvignon. Forgive me if you're not into wine, but... 
Some of the very best Cabernet Sauvignon from California and from other, the best Bordeaux of France. And, and some of them are, wow. And then here, now sex is better than far, it, the intoxicating, wonderful experience of sexuality within this book is far beyond, it uses metaphors to compare. Now how do in the world do we get from that to say heaven is better than that? Hmm. You know, I, when I came into seminary, I came into it from the background of a church that taught us that the Song of Solomon was the relationship between Jesus and the church. Uh, and uh, that, uh, you know, Israel held that it was the relationship between Yahweh and God's people. I came to seminary and I studied in Hebrew the Song of Songs, and I learned that that little chorus, his banner over me is love. <laughs> the one that we sing about Jesus, and Jesus is the Rose of Sharon, all of that in the, that's not talking about that. <laughs> this is talking about something quite different, and you get reading along in this material, and it's describing the fragrance and the perfume as this part of this love fest and your lips your lips distill nectar my bride honey and milk mmm a different kind of milk and honey milk and honey are under your tongue now some interpreters take it that <clears throat> while she was sleeping the husband uh, got a q-tip stuck it under her tongue and then took that to a lab to get it tested and it showed up milk and honey I don't know about that I think other interpreters go with it, the fact that they were involved in some kind of um, kissing don't know how to put this somehow kind of kissing where it uh, approximated the kind of kissing that we refer to with respect to a particular country in, in Europe, um, much akin to Quebec. And that's what the Bible's talking about. Wow. Now, I can't go any further into this because it gets hotter and the sexuality goes all the way there within the book. But after seminary, I started reading and understanding that there, okay, I don't like the allegorical view, but I do like the view that this is canonical literature. <laughs> and a canonical interpretation of this means that it was fit inside here to say, no, we don't disparage the sexuality in it. It's a celebration of human sexuality, but it is a celebration of human sexuality in order to mirror or echo in an analogous way the love of God and to say something beyond that. To say something beyond that in terms of what theologians talk about as the analogical whisper. The analogical whisper of God. That all of the pleasures 
whatever they are in our lives, the most exquisite beauty and pleasure in our lives are but a whisper of the profound voice of God that we will hear. In the, 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 it, it is an understatement. It is a harbinger. It is a little drop of the eschaton. Heaven will be far better than the very best sex you ever had. Sometimes it's the flip side is done in order to say the same thing. Here's how it works. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, writes this, that our momentary light afflictions are producing for us and anticipate the reverse or the comparative contrast, an eternal weight of glory. Now, I know a number of you in this room. And I know the pain, some of the pains of life that you have endured or you are enduring. And they aren't momentary and they aren't light. They are weighty, heavy, hard afflictions. You carry every day. And Paul is not making light of afflictions, no. For this is one book that we don't like seminary students to read because in it, 2 Corinthians, there are three suffering catalogs related to ministry. (laughs) We don't want you to read that just in case you think, oh my goodness, I might get a bullet. (laughs) You might get more than that, actually, Paul says. And and, uh, three suffering catalogs in this book, but in the middle of it, he says, if you know where we're headed, those are comparatively a feather. Because of the greatness and grandeur of where we're headed, It it, it is like turning the tables on the last one we just talked about to say that if we're going to understand the eschatological destiny, it must be understood as as an explosive comparative better that is better than even the worst worsts, you know, if they were flipped the other way. So that he could look at all of the stuff he went through in this broken world and say, you know what? Momentary, light affliction. No, not really. Not really at all, but compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now, the last picture I take you to, I like to call it the cosmic cube or the cosmic sugar cube. (laughs) The cosmic sugar cube come down 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. It is, a, it is a cube because it reflects, of course, many of you will know, the holy of the holies. 
the most concentrated presence of God on this earth, but the most concentrated presence of God is not even the concentrated presence of God in heaven. That's even more. And this is the upstairs holy of holies coming down that if you were to conceptualize heaven, it is the most concentrated presence of God. And it is that that morphs our world. It isn't that God stands back and says, hmm, I want to create a new heavens and new earth. No, it's the coming of God's presence into our world that morphs our world and changes it. And we're headed for this, I don't know, this funky eschatological destiny where you and I will function as kings and priests. Where is that going? Four times in the book of Revelation, kings and priests, kings and priests, that our eschatological destiny is on the level of the four thrones of Kerperavel for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Where is this taking us? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we're gonna judge angels? Who knows? Is there a cosmic dimension to this? Who knows? Something. And then it talks about vegetation, not merely one crop in a year or maybe two if you're lucky, but 12. And it's not magical, it's the concentrated presence of God that morphs our world into a new heavens and new earth. And I would posit, not only based on this text, but a number of other texts, that you and I will be morphed. That our eschatological destiny far exceeds any capacity that you or I have in this life. So that when I looked at John in some of the final days of his life, I realized that in some ways my eschatological capacity and our eschatological capacity will be like going from him where he was to today. Or going from this dang dump of a Camry car that has been beaten up by my teenagers driving it to a sleek Agrira engineered to go 270 miles an hour. We're headed for something great. Heaven better than sex? I think so. Blessings.